0: Welcome to Profiles in Eccentricity, a show about weirdos, with your hosts, John Fahey and Erin Peter.
1: Hello folks, welcome to Profiles in Eccentricity. We are a show about weirdos. My name is John Fahey. I am joined by a glistening baby under the sun, Mr. Uh, I'm just a baby. <laughs> Aaron Pita. Yeah! yeah. I'm Hi. sorry, I'm
2: just a glistening baby.
1: Yeah, and then a handsome rugged fellow by the name of Matt Brousseau. Hi, Matt. Hi. Ooh, rugged. Hey. Hey, rugged. <sighs> hey, John. Hey. How are you? I'm great. Yeah? Yeah. You look great. Um, we, um, we got to, straight up, off the bat, we got to ask listeners a favor. <gasps> guys, we could really use your help bumping our new episode of Bleak and Review, Matt's other podcast. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to usurp a couple of these other, you know, episodes these out there. These guys think they're big shots. They're not. not. They're if, not. You're, if you're a fan of uh the episode where we talk about the spit man of West London, yep. well, the spit man and his five a guy yeah make an appearance on Bleak and Review
1: can you, you believe it you wouldn't believe it uh, me and Aaron's uh pickup artist uh, parody characters Heath Barcelona and Randy Rigg uh, once again new video on YouTube yeah. uh, just go to Barcelona U- University yeah. Vegas go to YouTube and just type in Heath Barcelona with yeah. a
0: legend on it Huh? With uh oh, yeah, Brianna Banks. Yeah, yeah Brianna Banks is in the episode, which is
1: incredible. Uh plus it's me and fucking Aaron at the AVNs, which is yeah, ridiculous. Amazing. Oh, it's
2: great. I mean It
1: is so funny. Come on.
2: And then speaking of also related, on that episode is uh, on that Bleak and Review episode, we also play porn stars
1: Max Load and Amber Alert. Yes, yes, Amber Which is Very stupid. stupid. If you like all the dumb shit on profiles, this is um, me and Aaron getting really dumb on uh, Matt and Kevin's great podcast, which is really, I mean, the podcast is really so good for getting comedians to be able to flex character muscles and work Mm -hmm. on that stuff. Yeah, Um, It's the first time I ever did a character thing was on that show. Mm -hmm. Um, And now me and Aaron have done that stuff live on stage. Yeah. People seem to be liking it. Yeah. Um, But... Guys, please can b- please please review me and Aaron needed it for our egos big time. Uh, and it's really fun. It's really stupid. We have a whole bunch of fun. Yeah, I mean, if you're really into the
2: P-talk, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think every single character we did definitely... Everything's stupid. Everything's so dumb. Yeah, but we also did- pepper in some funny, smart stuff. It's sure, not, sure, sure. But it is mostly it's, stupid. Yeah, it's
1: dumb. It's dumb. It's smart dumb. Yeah. We also did two characters, uh, Two Guys About to Nut.
2: Yeah, yeah, and they were, you know, try it out. Just go, it out. Go, go go, download it, try out Bleak and Review. Yeah. And uh, subscribe. Right. Subscribe to us. Yeah. Mainly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but try out Bleak and Review, check out the episode, let us know what you think.
1: Yeah, it's a great podcast, and uh, there's a lot of really funny characters on there. I, um... I haven't done enough to hype the the whole Heath Barcelona second video yet. It's really stupid, really funny. Aaron did a whole lot of work with graphics and audio cues and a lot of stuff. You really did a fantastic job. Thanks, buddy. It's, Thanks. Buddy. The next one's it's
2: gonna beautiful. be. I think the next one. I got a new camera. Yeah. And so the next one will look a lot better mm-hmm. and it'll sound a lot better. I think sure. it, we're ready to kick that thing in the high gear. So if you want some more stupid uh, bisexual cocaine addicted pickup artistry <laughs> stuff, mm-hmm. uh, get ready for that because that'll um we'll, we'll shoot the next one soon.
1: Yeah, uh, this one um, I've got. I've got a little profile for uh, for a very uh, audio centric uh, audience. If you're at all a, a nerd about record producers and stuff like that, this uh, this guy just fascinated the living shit out of me. But first,
0: uh, Matt, you got a little something to bring to the program, don't you? Oh, okay. We're gonna give it to us, f- Matt. Well, well, you were talking about music yesterday, and I had something, and, I, and this is something I fell into last night. Really nice. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of. Um, Fortuitous that uh, you're talking music, and mm-hmm. this one isn't. Well, uh, we'll 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 see what it try is. It out. All right, we'll try it, we'll out. Try it out. All right, give it a deal, man. So, yeah, uh, uh, you know, like it, my my family has this whole a lot of history with the union stuff, and uh, really, oh yeah, yeah. Like, my dad is a union organist he's a Teamster, but my pa- my mom, uh, my dad, both uh, uh, Massachusetts Teachers Association teachers uh, mm-hmm. unions reps, and and. All kinds of stuff like that You know, when I was a kid My dad Would uh, He'd drive me to Go to the play I'd have to like Wake up at 6 in the morning From like age 6 Until like uh, High school Yeah And he'd have to drive me To go play hockey In like fucking New York mm-hmm. Wow Two hours And during that time There's nothing to do When the radio cuts out You know Or when it's repetitive He just He puts his music on And so he had this one uh, album That was called Don't Mourn Organize <laughs> Wow And it was all this music By this guy named Joe Hill Right. And Joe Hill was uh, basically became a union martyr. Really? Oh. And that will tie in eventually. But right now we go to 1950. Okay. Saturday Evening Post. There's a three-part series written by a guy named James Morton called The King of Thieves. Uh-huh. Now in this three-part series, James Morton, he says that the, he goes over his life. He says that he robbed trains and offices in over 40 states during his lifetime, mm-hmm. starting in the 1900. And uh, ending, you know, by this point, he's he's almost 60 years old. What was this series released in? Saturday Evening Post. Okay. You know, it was a, it was a periodical at yeah. the time.
1: That's a newspaper,
2: John.
0: <laughs> cool. Now, some things in this, uh, it turns out some things in this story were not true, or were they embellished, or glossed over. And one thing is certainly not true. This guy's name was not James Morton. Hmm. This guy's name was also not F.C. Wheeler, James Framer, James Franklin, James Morton, James Martin, George Moore, George Lawrence Moore, Lawrence George Moore, George Lawrence, James Herbert Osberg. These were all names he used to cover up his real name, which was Magnus Olsen. Mm. These were all names that were passed around through police offices and uh, uh, precincts. Magnus Olsen is such a cool name. Right. Well, he was born... In Norway in 1881, mm. his family moved here when he was three. They moved to Evanston, Illinois, and uh, then when he was ten, both his parents had died. And they don't they don't say how, but he moved in with an uncle, and then he became just like a shitty kid. Yeah, became a tough. He started running with this gang. Uh, they called themselves Filipinos. <laughs> uh, um, I, th- I think that's a
2: whole like nationality of people. Right that's just a uh-huh. gang.
0: Way to Filipinos. <laughs> yeah. Huh? <'Cause>, That's great. <laughs> and according to the newspaper, the local newspaper, they were known for burglary, burglary larceny, and malicious mischief. Mm. Those goddamn <laughs> Filipinos! Oh! And so his uh, his, 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 his cr- he starts committing crimes uh, around age 17, 18. And he's first arrested for armed robbery, and he served 16 months out of a possible 20 years. Jeez. Just, you know, good time. He's a good kid in jail. <laughs> Filipino privilege. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, he, he gets out a, a, a good time served, and uh, six months later, he's backed in again for robbery. But they don't know who he is. He says he's someone else. He gives one of his aliases. And you know how it is back then. It, it takes a little while for the information to go back and forth. Sure. So in this time, they let him go. And he flees because he's in violation of his parole. He goes out west. He follows the harvest. At one point, one of his jobs was cleaning the sprouts off potatoes in someone's root cellar.
1: (laughs) 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 What a total jerk-off job. Get that shit off my spuds, you magnus (laughs) (laughs) motherfucker. You Filipino (laughs) piece of shit. (laughs) You (laughs) motherfucker, you. These potatoes look like shit. Guy's Asian. (laughs) He's Filipino He's
2: Norwegian
0: This is a a tough life And uh, he doesn't like it very much He goes back to the Chicago area They arrest him They realize who he is They arrest him for parole parole violation They put him in jail He gets out uh, Not too long after that And he moves out west He wants to go to Alaska But he can't get past Seattle So he starts going down the coast He uh, gets into California And it's there He he tries to rob a boxcar again and he's arrested, spends three and a half years in Folsom Prison. Whoa. Whoa. And you know what happens there? They don't rehabilitate you. All mm. he learned in there was the essentials of the stealing trade. Right. His, uh, his roommate was a guy who taught him how to break safes. hmm And uh, so from there, you know what he did? That's it. As, <laughs> as soon as he left, he started robbing boxcars up and down the West Coast. Wow. Now, uh, 1907, they arrest him because he was just walking down the street and just beat up a stranger. Jesus. Obviously, he's got some issues. Sure. Uh, they let him go. Three weeks later, he's arrested because he looks like a man who killed uh, who tried to rob a house and then killed the guy who owned it. But he just looked like him, so he didn't have any proof because that guy was dead. Right. Yeah. So then he uh, he's, he's tr- heads back to Chicago, spends a week there. During that time, he breaks into a house, steals a bunch of money orders, and tries to burn it down. Hmm. They catch him because it turns out he just stole receipts. And huh. he's at a bar just trying to turn in receipts.
1: Jesus Christ.
0: 1908, he's arrested for robbing a boxcar in Reno. He gets two and a half years there. During that time, he decides to write a false autobiography about how his his farm life in the West is tough to try to get uh, uh, clemency or leniency. Huh. They don't really like it, so... uh, This book sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Two more (laughs) years. Poorly written. It's just a bunch of receipts. In 1911, he's arrested for stealing furs and silks. All right, now we're talking. Uh Uh-huh. As he's leaving the building... The cop sees him. He runs up into the hotel uh, nearby, jumps through a uh, uh, two-story window, lands on a tin roof, falls through it, and lands right in front of the officer who is chasing him. Wow. Good stuff. Damn. Kismet. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. Now, in 1913, he's arrested under suspicion of robbing a brothel. Uh, 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 What? Like, of money. Well, uh, so his partner just steals a bunch of prostitutes. (laughs) He took a whole brothel with him. He just wheeled it out of town. He
2: stuck all these hookers in a bag and left.
1: (laughs) Give me the nut.
0: (laughs) Well, what happened is his partner went there. His partner saw that there was a bunch of money. His partner tried to rob it, and then uh, they arrested his partner. And then this guy shows up the next day under an alias, and he says, "My name's Frank Wilson. I I think a friend of mine might have left something here." And so he picks up a madam and he goes into a room and he tries to rob her. They call the cops again. He flees. The next night, two fires are started in the building. They're like, Mm. oh, I can kind of guess who did this. Right. So they arrest him under suspicion of this, don't have any proof, uh, and they let him go. Mm -hmm. Now, he's robbing cars in uh, uh, Elko, Nevada, Mm -hmm. and Ogden, Utah. And in between both of these cities is a place called Salt Lake. Mm. And on January 9th, 1914, this man named John Morrison, him and his son, they run a... uh, uh, a grocery business in Salt Lake And for the second time in four months They're in a shootout Jesus And John Morrison and his son are both killed The first thing the police do is they arrest Frank Wilson Right FC Wilson as he's calling himself at the mm-hmm. time He convinces the cops that he didn't do anything wrong And by "convince," they mean bribe Hmm and he says, this is the only time in his life, at this point, he's, he confesses to a crime. He says, oh, actually, you know, I'm not guilty of this, but I did rob that, rob that box car in Elko. And so they ship him out to Elko, Nevada. Hmm. And so what happens next is the cops are looking for someone to pin this on. They need to find someone who did this crime or looks like that. They arrest 10 other people. Uh, don't, uh, none of, they don't feel like any of them did it. And then they hear about this one man who went to a doctor's office that night with a gunshot wound. Mm-mm. And he's a Swedish man, tall Mm-mm. Fits the description of Frank Wilson mm-hmm. And his name is Joseph Hillstrom Or Joe Hill mm-hmm. Now Joe Hill is a musician, poet, international workers of the world uh, a Member, organizer mm-hmm. a Big union guy And they were not looked upon uh, uh, well by the cops and people in power Sure So they, they think he's the, he was once arrested for vagrancy Right, standing around. yeah, yeah. Hanging out. Uh-huh. or <laughs> Organizing. <laughs> so that night, he won't say. They say, Joe, how'd you get this morning? And he said, I won't say. He wasn't telling anybody. Huh. Okay. And they uh, they say, well, where were you that night? He says, I can't tell you. And they say, well, you've got to give us something here. He says, no, I can't do it. Now, it's revealed. In the 2000s, a man is doing research on a list, and he discovers that Joe Hill was in love with this, this 20-year-old woman, and a friend of his was, too. And he was mar- his friend was married to her, and they had divorced, and she fell in love with Joe. uh uh-uh. And Joe told her in a letter that he had, was shot by his friend over this woman. Oh, fuck. Hmm. And in fact, Joe says during to the cops, he says, my arms were up. That's where the bullet wounds from. And if you, they examined his coat, and they found that the bullet hole that went through his coat... Was actually four inches higher than it would have been, indicating his arms were up. Wow, yeah. forensics, forensics, science. And so this whole story right here, this whole uh, Joe Hill thing. Eventually, he won't give up whatever happened during mm. this time, and so uh, most people think he's innocent of it. The cops don't believe it. Uh, President Wilson, at the time, he he uh, goes to the. the uh, the governor of Utah, and he asked for uh, for him to be released or or not executed. Really, governor of Utah says no. Wow. Uh, Susan B. Anthony uh, did. Uh, no, who's the uh, who's the blind and deaf woman? Uh, Helen Keller. Helen Keller. What did she say? She also. Uh, I don't know how she got involved, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like hey, yeah. I don't know if we can trust you on this one. Hell <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, they execute him. Whoa! Mm. Firing squad. Really? Yeah. And he, the the story is that they bring Joe out to to uh, get shot, and. Uh, the guy uh, running the running the guns, he says, Ready, aim, and then Joe Hill says, Fire! Go on and fire. Wow. You fucking
2: motherfuckers!
0: <laughs> <laughs> I Not, fucked all your wives! Try it out! Pit <laughs> <laughs> on me, piss on me. And the belief is that uh, Joe wanted, he wanted to become a martyr for his cause. He kind of believed that his union cause was bigger than him, and he figured Did, he would go down for this. But yeah. was... Th- I, did he mention that during this whole like? Yes,
2: he he was espousing his union. Yes. Okay. Okay. So it was it wasn't just about. Um,
0: he wasn't just hiding the the fuckery. The fuckery. He was hiding the union. He kind of realized maybe this is how he makes his. Okay, stand. got it. Hmm. Huh. And so he he goes to death for it, mm-hmm. and this became a rallying cry for. Uh, the IWW And and unions all over the place His ashes were put into 30 bags And handed out And, asked, and uh, scattered across the land hmm. And it became this huge This big song It was written about him uh, This poet wrote a, a version He said I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you or me Says Joe Says I but Joe You're 10 years dead I never died Says he I never died Says he And this became a huge song Woody Guthrie did Joan Baez sang it at Woodstock Paul Robeson Pete Seeger Hmm and because uh, I fell into it, I was, looking, uh, I was looking at this Bob Dylan song, I Dreamed of Saving Augustine, and it opens with I Dreamed of St. Augustine, Alive as You or Me. And he was clearly basing it on this that. Joe Hill song. Yeah. Hmm. And so it, it, I, this career criminal just kind of skates through the land, causing ruckus, mm-hmm. and accidentally helps create one of these great folk songs yeah, it's of crazy. all time. That is why, By
2: letting an innocent man get
0: killed. By <laughs> letting in his place. Yeah. Now, so what happened to, to Morton is uh, he went to jail for the boxcar robbery. He became friends with the warden while he was in jail, became right. his personal driver. Then through that, became friends with the governor of Utah, mm. who then wrote a letter to the uh, prison, and he got released early. And then in his 50s, he joined Al Capone's gang in Chicago- in 1929, he participated in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. No shit. Where his car was used as the getaway vehicle. Wow. No shit.
1: Damn. Magnus.
0: Mm.
2: This is my son, Magnus. AKA Frank. AKA John. AKA. How many names did he have?
0: Yeah. He's 15,
1: 20. <laughs> it was like as many as fucking. R. Bala, like yeah. the porn actor. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Baller.
2: Robert Bala. Roger Bala. <laughs> Bala. <laughs> That's from the um, Rogério Diodato episode of the podcast. Go back yeah. and
0: check that one out. Uh, here's, my last, here's my last footnote. Now, there were two men who killed James Morrison and his son, and uh, one of them was a short man with a scar on his face. He mm. was seen around the area before the crime happened, and no one knew who he was, but he was widely suspected to be this guy, Thomas Waite, who was found to be lurking around with uh, Morton. Being a, uh, being ra- a vagrant. Yes, mm. in, in effect. And so he went to jail for the boxcar thing. He got out in uh, 1915. The first night he gets out, he goes and he sleeps at this boarding house in Reno where he has this terrible nightmare. He's fighting an imaginary person. He rolls off the bed, falls, off, uh, falls on the ground, hits his face onto a porcelain spittoon, where he cracks his head open, cuts his throat open, and go-
1: Jesus Christ.
0: <laughs> goes to the hospital, and the next day the newspaper headline reads... Man with nightmare fights furniture. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, oh, that's rich. good stuff. That is rich. I like that a lot.
1: People were mean back then,
2: huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the sh- well, shame keeps you honest.
1: Yeah, I, 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 like, I think about that all the time. Like, no joke. I think, just please don't let me die like an asshole. Oh. Like, I just don't want to die. I think about that all the time. Like the one guy that dies on the Disney ride, like, don't ever mm-hmm. let me be that. I don't, like, I... Because I laugh so hard at it when I hear about it. I'm like, you are an idiot. Mm-hmm. You know? But it's so funny to me.
2: Yeah. You're a maniac.
1: That's so funny to me. Like, if Yeah, you... you laughed at the scene in Boogie Nights where they
2: <laughs> shot up a donut shop. Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> but dying in a dumb way? Mm-hmm. so funny. Oh, it's the best. So funny. Dumb deaths? Come on.
1: So that that's uh. So wait, so wait, so this guy had recorded stuff before his death. he had never. He was he was a writer. He played music, uh, but he was okay. a writer
0: and a poet, and he had traveled around, kind of just being like a Woody Guthrie type before Woody Guthrie.
1: Okay, so these were kind of like uh like songs like redone by other artists that your dad would be listening to. Right,
0: and so it became this whole Joe Hill album. He had this other song called Mister Block. Uh-huh. So Mister Block, you were born by mistake. You take you you take the cake. You make me ache. Tie a block around your neck and go jump in the lake. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Block is the guy who breaks uh, strikers. When right. and, and...
2: Uh, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Blockbuster. That was that
1: was the only job Carl uh, Panzram had that he did well at was was, <laughs> yeah. was
2: strike breaking. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: it <laughs> takes got, a certain cut. And he got the shit kicked out of
1: him. <laughs> he got totally jumped. So funny. That was that's uh, that's good stuff, Matt. It's a very Amer. it feels like a very American tale. Yeah, yes. I didn't know you had this huge yeah. union background. Yeah, that's very yeah. fascinating to me. It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's pure Americana right mm-hmm. there. No unions now. <laughs> oh, no, no. fuck them, right? Yeah. That's what my dad had, like, Well, a- unless you're, you know,
2: prisons guard union, and mm-hmm. you have tons of power.
0: Right, union. Yeah.
1: yeah. That was my dad's big, uh, beef with Reagan. He was like, it destroyed the unions forever. Mm-hmm. Like, they were already on the ropes. Yeah. But then after that, he was just very obviously siding with no. Mm-hmm. And that was that. Yep. And there's no unions now. No, there's. I mean, there's teachers unions, and then there's like police. No, yeah, there's cops. Yeah, whatever. But like, you know what I mean? Like, there's. It's
2: a lot of government employee unions. Yeah. There's not a lot of um, you know, private unions. The Teamsters are still around, but
1: right. But it's like you know, people talk about like income inequality and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, you got no fucking balls. No bargaining power. <laughs> this... mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: My grandma worked for the Teamsters for. She was retired. Really? She retired working for the Teamsters. Jesus
0: Christ. Yeah. What? What? Uh, how'd she get in there? Oh, she whacked the guy. Nice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then she was, uh, she did like some like bookkeeping
1: type of stuff, I think. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was doing the show with a bunch of fucking communists mm-hmm. here. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, my dad was a long-haul truck driver. Really? Yeah. Oh, very nice. That was his college gig.
1: No shit. I don't get paid that much anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up uh, Teamster, huh? Yeah.
2: Wow. Long-haul trucking it used to be very, very nice. Mm-hmm. And the cat, the trucks... Oh, awesome. Yeah. Sleeper cabs in the back and all that. Very cool gig. But then they don't pay you anymore. We're going to get a little political here, <laughs> listeners. They don't pay you anymore. As gas, as diesel prices went up and shoot up, they, they never, like, increase the prices uh, yeah. or the pay. Yeah. It's crazy. So yeah, just, well I just know, do a lot of speed to stay up. They,
1: wow. Yeah. Dude, I mean, like, the job is also now probably, they think, going to be the first uh, robotic thing. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So it'll just be gone. Mm-hmm. So even, like, it's not a great job, but... It won't be a job at all. They're yeah. saying, like, pretty soon.
0: Now you get killed mm-hmm. by a robot. Yeah.
1: <laughs> a yeah, robot they... can drive you <laughs> off the road. <laughs> yeah, now the robot's doing speed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> robot glory holes on the road. Uh, uh, yeah, actually, they just had the first uh, automated truck just made his first cross country journey, like, this week. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and I think Caterpillar beat Tesla to the punch.
1: Geez, no shit. Yeah. Wow. I'm pretty
2: sure it was Cat. I think it was Cat. Yeah.
1: All right, guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a guy. Um, this story is super, super fascinating to me. Um, this guy uh, just became kind of um, just an audio maniac. Um, he, he, uh, he was born in 1929. His name is Robert George Meek. Goes by Joe. Huh? Duh. <laughs> <laughs> oh Rod, what? Huh? So he's, you know, he's out in like, the countryside of England whatever. Um... His uh, his mom wanted a daughter but she got Joe.
2: Oh, great. <laughs> that usually turns out so well. So she uh dre- uh
1: put him in dresses till age 4. Oh. Yeah. Where's his dad? I I dude, I I don't know, but the the other the other boy What the fuck? The other boys were outdoor boys and Joe would always be in the shed playing with electronics. In his dress. Well, I mean, like, no wonder you put him in dresses. You know what I'm saying? like, he was an indoor. It's like, well, Well, no, he didn't want to go outside, outside, frolic in his dress. (laughs) He was probably trying to make his own
2: electric chair to kill himself.
1: (laughs) Uh, Right. But, I mean, he, uh, so he, he starts just fucking around with electronics, like, from a very early age. He becomes extremely involved, um, just obsessed with it. And he's, I mean, he's fucking around to the extent that, uh, He's manipulating audio stuff with tape stuff. He, and this is just stuff that he's found, uh, begged for, mm-hmm. borrowed, whatever. He's just fucking around with stuff. And they said, like, he had maybe the first incarnation of a television in his area of England at the time. No shit. And so, yeah. the, I
2: mean, this... He was born in what? 29. 1929.
1: So, so, he's he's way ahead of the curve as a 10-year-old? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's, bar- this, there's barely electronics. is just some, like, weird world you can dive into. Sure, you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, so, he's... Music, uh recording, all that stuff, and then like he's like playing stuff backwards, he's doing all that weird shit mm-hmm. and it's just like he's trying it out. You know what I mean? He's like doing all kinds of fucked up weird stuff and being like, Oh, when I do this, this happens and it's just all pure mm-hmm. experimentation. Um he he grows up, he uh, he does uh, national service in the RAF mm-hmm. and he's uh he does radar stuff.
2: That's the Royal Air Force.
1: Yeah, the for, uh, Royal American Air Force. And so he gets involved with radar stuff, with, uh, which pushes him more into audio shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, also he gets really, he's really into space stuff, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he gets a job at a studio and... Post-war. Uh, post, po- yeah. Post-World right. War II. Right. And okay. he's, he's, um, he's messing with stuff without telling people.
2: Very, very nice. Yeah, like
1: he'll distort the sound on the piano, like on jazz records and stuff like that. But then the record would become a hit. So then, like, after that, he'd be like, yo, I did this, this, and this that you didn't know about, and that re- sounds fucking dope. Because people weren't, like, people weren't trying to fuck around with they, were right. they were not trying it out. They <laughs> were not trying it out. Because the thing was, is, like, like th- these guys that would record you, they used to wear fucking, like, white lab coats, and the whole thing would be about getting it as the clarity. Yeah. Or would... in the lab. Yeah, no, but 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 keep the sound as pure as you can. And he was like, no, what if it sounds like... So he, this guy really was the one that... Created the idea of using the recording studio as an instrument itself. Uh huh. Nobody was doing that before. Right. Right. Playing you know? with the acoustics. Right. Um, so he was. Um, he started this this label, and uh, it was you know independent. He was outside the the big studio system, which was you know a massive you know huge thing, and uh, he was selling some records. But then he found he could only go to independent pressing plans to get that record out. And they couldn't keep up with the demand, so he was like kind of seeing what it was like doing things from an independent perspective of the major label system. Okay. Because they have all the big plants at their disposal. And they're
2: on contract that they can't do independent. Right, right.
1: right. So he, um, he ends up starting um, a production place in a, a three-story flat, right? And uh, so he's got like neighbors and stuff like that. But this is the first time that there's been a recording studio outside of the studio system that you can go to. Mm-hmm. Right? You can just show up. If you got money, you can pay, and he's doing stuff, right? Mm-hmm. That had never happened before. Um, he gets bankrolled by a toy importer, Major Wilfred Alonzo Banks. <laughs> toy importer. <laughs> Major uh-huh. Wilfred Alonzo Banks. Yes. That's the most insane series of words. <laughs>
0: Ridiculous.
1: It's <laughs> called RGM Sound Limited, right? It's later changed to uh Meeksville Sound because his his name started getting around. And he's uh he's he's just trying out uh really weird shit. He he started with a sound um that was kind of like he was trying to do spacey, like weird type mm-hmm. shit, right? Uh this song called uh Johnny Remember Me. Uh Aaron, if you could play that for us. Sure. And you can hear how like he gets into some of the spacey sounds. How eerie this is. When the mist surrounds and the rain is falling, and the wind is blowing, cold across the morning.
2: I hear the voice of my darling. So, this song, girl, I love and lost.
1: This song was known as a death ditty. Because this song was written by a psychic about a guy that died, right? And Joe, Joe Meek himself was very into the occult. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. This is a very uh, good follow-up to Alistair. Yeah. He uh, believed he was uh, communicating via Ouija board with uh, Buddy Holly, uh-huh. who, had, who had died. Yeah, right.
2: yeah.
0: Um, what, what year was that song out? This song came out in... It sounds like it could be a song from, like, the 70s. Oh, no, 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 no. Earlier. No, this is yeah. very early yeah, 60s. right, which is... Uh, it's, a,
2: it's ahead of its... it's right.
1: it, it is. That's the thing. Yeah. Is that this guy really kind of started that whole 60s sound and really never got credit right. for it at all.
2: It sounds like something in a, in a Tarantino movie. Right.
1: Yeah, this is 1961. Mm-hmm. Okay? Right. So that came out in 1961, but it's a death ditty, right, which was mm-hmm. a little bit of a, um, like, a... a bi-Atlantic thing that was going on where it would be these dark songs and you hear like all that background wailing and yeah. shit like that. Th- that song was banned by the BBC.
2: Oh, what? Because it was too macabre?
1: <laughs> yeah, all those death ditties, they were like, this is creepy and weird and we don't like it and it's it's branching into that occult stuff. That,
2: Meanwhile, uh, they're all sacrificing kids and right, shit in yeah. to mansions. <laughs> yeah. Too close to home. Yeah.
1: Right. It's a, it's, a, it's an old British true detective episode. <laughs> 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 yes, try it out. Bugger, fellow, and chop his head off. But uh, so that song becomes number one. That's the first time an independent producer ever had a number one hit. No shit. That never, ever happened before.
2: Wow. That was a number one song.
1: That was a number one hit. Yeah. And uh, so he's, uh, he, he's But he's up front about talking to the press He tells him about Yeah I talked to Buddy Holly. I wrote
2: her off a Ouija board yeah. uh... No
1: no no there was another psychic that actually wrote the song mm-hmm. But it's just that Joe Meek was like Was kind of uh, Was open to that shit you know mm-hmm. But he was so involved with The um, the studio As as the uh, the instrument mm-hmm. That he wasn't really a talent guy Right And he would go out and find like pretty boys, and be like, "I'm gonna make you a star," and then they would suck. And but but he was doing stuff like um, he was the first one to 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 push like the drums to the front of the mix, which is today now a big favorite of Steve Albini's sound mm-hmm. is like vocals in the back, drums up front. You know, like it just like having like the recording have like more balls and shit like mm-hmm. that. But back then, that was way ahead of its time but also he was trying to 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 drum out these guys shitty vocals because they, ah. they weren't stars or singers they were dudes he was trying to fuck <laughs> oh <laughs> nothing yeah. changes in right music. yeah yeah he was just like ah, oh, you're gonna be a star or whatever so he's got this guy around bert heinz uh-huh. okay bert heinz is a, a german brit mm-hmm. um so bert heinz and he's you know yeah he's like he's like you know, cultivating a fucking, uh, like, a look for him. He's telling him to peroxide, dude, yeah. shit his hair.
2: Put on this dress I used and, to wear as a kid. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> and uh, and 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 he's coming on to Heinz all the time, and Heinz is like, I don't want to fucking do that. I just want to, you know, be a successful artist or whatever. And he's like, well, I want to fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and, how, how bad do you want to be a successful yeah, artist? Yeah, and uh, so, he, you know, he's like, I used to tell him to fuck off. And, uh, you know, they have, like, some dispute. It goes on and on. He keeps kind of hassling him and stuff like that. And uh, Bert Hines ends up leaving, leaves a shotgun behind in their little dispute because they were kind of uh, cohabitating. Um, but he puts out a lot of shitty records and the public is just like, this guy's a jerk off and, you know, it sucks. Uh, you know, this guy's got to go. And he's he's still in the studio. He's fucking around with all kinds of crazy shit to make wacky sounds that if you manipulated it, you would never know where the original sound came from, like... Uh, Blowing bubbles in a straw and hearing the bubbles come up. You know what I'm saying? Like shit Mm -hmm. like that or flushing the toilet like all kinds of super homemade weird shit to get these crazy-ass sounds after fucking with them. He was very big into compression. Mm -hmm. Nobody had really fucked around with that before. Um, He uh, was also the first person to do the whole thing of... Phil Spector and those guys were all about the wall of sound. Mm can you it, explain that for the audience? The Wall of what exactly Sound wall of is sound like... Because uh, it was revolutionary. It was. It allowed
2: it allowed for music to sound good over AM radio.
1: Right. But it's... it's, it's everybody recorded back then, every instrument in the room, everybody doing everything at the same time. Phil Spector kind of made it bigger with, holy shit, here's a fucking band and an orchestra and a band and it's a whole huge sound. Joe Meek was exactly the opposite of that. Uh-huh. He was like, separate everything. And that really became the standard for recording that we still have today. Right. Nobody's fucking doing all that shit at the same time. Yeah, because you're not going to. It's all bouncing off each other. It's all fucked up. Right. You know what I mean? Like, um, and so that gets to this day, uh, changes everything, and it gives you all kinds of like weird things. Like, I I wanted to use an example with uh, if you could play the first Joy Division clip. This is Joy Division live to hear what they sounded like as a band, which a lot of people don't understand. They were such a raucous live band. All right, so this is the recorded version uh, that we're going to play next by Martin Hannett, who really embraced kind of the Joe Meek style of using space to get in between everything. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds like such a bigger landscape. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it really fills up the room. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Everything's crisp, right? So nobody was doing that before. Everybody was doing this thing, and like it's kind of a thing that you can hear even now. And so that goes on in the recording industry to go all the way down to like when Motley Crue was recording drum tracks. They recorded every single drum separately mm. to just hyper-produce mm-hmm. everything. Because mm-hmm. imagine you take every single thing mm-hmm. and then you throw some reverb on it. Which, by the way, Reverb was all from Joe Meek. No shit. That All this shit came from him. This whole thing about having it sound spacey. He was the first one to come up with a, a concept album. It was a space opera called I Hear a New World. Huh. And it was like every track was going to have like a template of like... Uh, or like a kind of like a... It, every track had like... um. Like a background story, it's like now we're on a part of the moon where the gravitational thing leaves all the rocks floating three feet above the surface, and like huh. he painted these pictures. So he has a band come in, and he records all this weird space stuff over it. Um, but anyway, but I mean, basically, he's he's doing some really far out there stuff, some really really fucking weird stuff, and he's in a three story flat doing this. Hmm. He's got a landlady like hitting the fucking. Broom. He mics her up on the on the thing <laughs> on the roof, right? And so what he would do is to get back at the landlady, he, he would take a speaker outside and leave it in the hallway, <laughs> <laughs> just to be like, "Do you want to see how bad this is? Like I can make this really fucked up." But this space age album, I hear a new world. Joe Meek and the Blue Men. Right? It never comes out. All he can afford to put out because of label shit is an EP with four of the songs. It sells ninety nine copies. Mm-hmm. It was like revolutionary for the time there was no this is before 2001 and stuff like, Yeah, this is like this guy was tapping into like really crazy stuff. Yeah, and we he, hadn't gone to the moon He was doing he was doing like really insane stuff He was um, he was uh, he was just doing really far out there stuff But in the, in the meantime people are like understanding. Oh my god. This guy is really onto some really crazy weird stuff uh, He's got uh, Brian Epstein the manager of the Beatles comes to him plays him a demo. He tells them they're going nowhere Forget it <laughs> Never mind. Skip it. <laughs> then this band comes in. He, he's like, oh, this guy. these guys are cool. Their singer starts singing in the studio. Joe Meek runs into the booth where the guy is singing with two hands in each of his ears screaming until the guy leaves. <laughs> that was Rod Stewart. <laughs> he throws out David Bowie. Another time, right? Oh, Ziggy Stardust he's, himself. Yeah, he's fucking up everything, right? Uh, he's, he's he finds uh, Tom Jones. He starts doing stuff with Tom Jones and a band. It was called like Tom Scott and the Senators. Everybody, everybody's uh. name sucked back then. <laughs> yeah. It was like the Conrads. What? <laughs> Who cares? The Conrads. The Conrads. Like no joke. That's one of the bands. Like in this whole like menagerie. Uh. But Tom Scott and the Senators get the fuck out of <laughs> here. Terrible. Humiliating. You know what I mean? (laughs) So um, then he he puts out a a hit. Uh, It's it's by the Tornadoes. It sells five million copies. And this will show you kind of some of the space age stuff he was doing with uh, the sound of the day.
2: Yo, this is dope. Right? Five million copies, huh?
1: Yeah. For the time, dude. I mean... That's a lot of copies, we like 62. This is what's playing when I go in the teak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that so dope? Yeah. All right, so... Very weird. He gets sued for copyright infringement <laughs> for this song right and he's like fuck so he's not getting any royalties from his fucking mega hit right who sued him for what it's like a french artist is saying this is ripped off of this song eventually it would come out that he he, they were like no he he lost they lost the suit right but in the meantime he's fucking pissed right um he's uh he's super super pissed and he starts getting crazy in the studio he becomes famous for throwing things at people in the studio (laughs) right uh, one time, uh, the Tornadoes uh, had a drummer, and uh, he threw a brand new tape deck at him, like a massive machine. And another drummer uh, wasn't like listening to him one time, and he comes in with the shotgun left behind by Bert Hines. Bert Hines used to get beans thrown at him, by the way, because of Hines beans <laughs> on stage because he couldn't sing. <laughs>
2: Uh, Eat the uh, beans, pretty
1: boy. Yeah. It's just like people were like, "Who? This guy is not cool. Fuck this! So let's throw beans at him." Long history of throwing produce. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but so he comes in with Bert Hines shotgun and shoves it in the face of uh, this drummer.
2: Dude, Phil Spector <laughs> ripped
0: off
1: everything from this dude. So one time, one time, Phil Spector called him up like like innocent phone call, and Joe Meek started screaming at him like, "Oh, you're 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 stealing shit from me." But, uh, yeah, Phil Spector used to fucking do this shit. Uh, he used to tie people up. Yeah, and put guns in their mouth. Yeah, he, he did it to uh, uh, John Lennon. He uh, During end-of-the-century recordings, uh, he did it to the Ramones. Um, Joey was like, what do you got to drink? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, anyway, that drummer was uh, Mitch Mitchell, who ended up drumming for the H- Jimi Hendrix experience. <laughs> like, this guy just he hated people that were talented. You know what I mean? Like, it was ridiculous. Oh, the Ramones, uh... But the thing is, is that people start adopting his sound. Right. So now they're doing Joe Meek without Joe Meek. Right. So it's like they don't fucking need him. You know what I mean? And um, there's, you know, he's like left behind because he's a fucking loser. None of his shit is working out. And they're just ripping him off. That's going to drive him crazy. Right. So he's still doing like an odd hit here and there with fucking, he has a hit called uh, Have I the Right by The Honeycombs. All (sighs) right. He starts doing, um, you know, a lot of drugs and, uh, he's also... What kind of drugs? Well, he might be chopping it up. I know, chopping it know.
2: up. He's trying it all out. But
1: he's also, um, you know, he was arrested for, like, a, a, a kind of George Michael bathroom hookup situation. Ooh, cruises. So that's left him exposed to blackmail. And then there's also been a, um, like a murder in the gay community. Um, and... <laughs> I'm sorry. This is so stupid. Um... But the London police—it's known they're gonna interview like every gay man.
0: <laughs> we got a list of them. They do, and he's in it.
1: You know what I mean? So he's like freaked out about that and the exposure from it. Like this is back when—I mean, homosexuality is still a crime,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is fucking insane. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this is a while after Oscar Wilde. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's fucking—it's—it's. It's... So he's—he's—he's he's, he's got money problems. um... He's, uh, he's, he's kind of losing it. He's going back into the occult stuff. He starts uh, bringing tape recorders to the graveyard and uh, you know, trying to communicate with the dead that way. and he's like, "This cat sounds like a dude saying, "Help me," you know <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, seriously, he's doing shit like that." And he's uh, freaking out, and uh, on the eighth anniversary of uh, the death of Buddy Holly, um, he uh, he shoots the lady that was knocking on the ceiling.
2: Uh, the landlady? <laughs> oh
1: no! <laughs> so, he, so he was still living there. Yeah, he didn't oh, just yeah, like yeah. drive uh, there years. Oh, no, later. no, 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 no. It's his house and recording. You know, it's uh. It's... <laughs> he miked her up. Her <laughs> death. <laughs> so he shoots her. Then
2: Gotta he shoots a fresh him, one. Yeah. Then he shoots himself, right? Oh, with, like, with the shotgun?
1: Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Three weeks later, um, he he wins the uh the case the fucking plagiarism thing as a dead man as a dead man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jesus. And. Uh, you know, yeah. like, uh, so he misses out on all that, all that money, right? Yeah. And so later on, they're like, uh, you know, they they the Music Producer Guild in 2009 created the Joe Meek Award for Innovation in Production as a uh, homage for the remarkable producer's pioneering spirit, quote. And uh, he was named by NME, a uh, famous British musical, uh, per- uh, periodical, um... The greatest producer of all time. What? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Because it like, completely changed the game. Yeah. It's totally trailblazing, totally weird, totally uh, just trying it out. No, like. Very eccentric. Nobody was willing to fuck with stuff. Everybody was trying to keep it pure. And he was like, why? Why not? Yeah. You know, like, uh, the record is going to outlive everything, the band. The, the, you know, like, the record lives forever. Why wouldn't you do every single... Why wouldn't you use every tool at your disposal right. to fucking make it, like, the best thing it could possibly be? Right. You know? It involves taking risks, and people don't want to take risks. They uh they made, like, a... Like, in, when they have, like, a famous British person, they put, like, a blue, pla- uh, blue plaque there, like, this is William Shakespeare's house, whatever. So, kind of, like, making fun of that, they did a black plaque at the Holloway Studios where he lived, um... It was called Holloway Studios? It was, uh, the, the street was named Holloway, um, uh-huh. but uh, it's like he still shot the Lantley. Yeah, they did uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. I was, <laughs> I was
0: hoping you weren't going to say they put a plaque there.
1: No, yeah. no, no. Um, the legacy of his endless experimentation, according to MME, is writ large over most of your favorite music today.
2: Yeah, I mean, now everything's, you know, reverb, de-res, it's all isolated, like you said, every mm-hmm. single... Track every instrument or every part of an instrument's got its own track, right? That, that's I mean, auto tune. Nobody sounds like they sound live,
1: yeah, ever, yeah. And I mean, it's just also the thing where it's like, know oh, this is just a guy that didn't have a chance, yeah, you know what I mean. He's, I mean, dresses well. I mean, you're also, I mean, just you're a gay guy at the time, which I mean, you know, th- you're outside th- the studio system, studio system is not in favor at all. Mm-mm. Um... And then, you know, you're an eccentric weirdo, uh, tough to deal with. Yeah. But oh my God, how many bad choices could this guy possibly make? Right, yeah. right. Like that... Kicking out Bowie and the Beatles is
2: hilarious. Uh,
0: and the, the fact I mean, when you're talking about this, I was thinking about the Beatles because of how lauded they are mm-hmm. for being the first band to experiment. You know, the, the first track that, oh, ever, yeah. the, that ever had guitar feedback was on, what, Revolvers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And so clearly these ideas either came to them or rubbed off onto them. Oh, yeah. It, it,
1: I mean, like, that scene is... The the interesting thing about the British music scene is that it's so small, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this thing of, uh, like, with NME, it's, it's a weekly thing. So it's like every week, whether you're going through, like, the punk explosion or the post-punk time with Joy Division and the Smiths and everything else, like, every week there's a new thing, and it's like, what's going on? And everybody's really dialed into it. It's felt like this onslaught ever since, like, the Beatles and whatever, you know? Um, so there's always all this shit to take in and everybody's paying very close attention. Even if it's a not like well selling record, there's like people that are like, Okay, they're listening, mm-hmm. They're avidly listening. Right. So then they started realizing like, let's just fucking rip off what this guy's doing. Like, mm-hmm. this is weird, let's fuck around with this. But this space opera album is just like he was the first one to start like doing like sped up vocals so they sound chipmunksy and stuff yeah. like that. So like but that is like, some of them are, like, are just like, here's a space interlude where it just sounds like you're on a planet. Yeah. And then some very like 60s-ish music starts playing, but <laughs> the guy sounds like a chipmunk. Like, it's super out there.
2: That's neat.
1: You know? Like, uh, um, he had all of this shit recorded that uh, they called the tea chest tapes because some guy after his death bought the whole lot for 300 pounds, <sighs> right? It goes to auction. I think it's sold for like 200 grand. Wow. You know, but it's got like, you know, 16 year old Bowie on it and stuff. Like when he was playing <laughs> sax in a band and shit like that, you know. Um, but like, it's crazy, like how there's always this thing of like this weird kind of like, uh, you know, Sith relationship between like the artist and the and, and the producer, you know, how they're like, they're just so like, you know, They're both artists and they're both insane Mm -hmm. and both is trying to convince the other one of what's going to happen. So like it, it'll become violent all the time. Yeah. It's just crazy, you know, but like these guys would have such a unique vision and stuff like that.
2: that... Yeah, well, the producer is playing the artist as an instrument as
1: well, right? Like, no, no, no. I need Mm -hmm. you to do it like Mm -hmm. this. Right. But the, but the producer always has none of the collateral, you know what I mean? You don't have any collateral until you make the record. Yeah. You can go see the guy at a bar and he sings his balls off and you'll be like, okay, got it. But the producer, it's like, until the record's done, why would you trust him? Right. You know? So all these guys would be freaking out all the time. Like, I just started watching the Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine Uh thing on HBO Uh and it's like that thing too. It's like all these guys taking crazy risks. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times lying and saying like, oh, no, I'm not. I'll do it the way you want. (laughs) You know? And then like... But they would always, all of these guys that would always come up, it was always because they rebelled. Yeah. You know, it's because they did things a different way. Like, Steve Albini was like, you know, he, he just was a, a nerd obsessed with audio. And then, like, suddenly like, the Pixies are going to him. And then, like, Nirvana's going to him. And Jimmy Page and stuff like that. Jimmy Page, by the way, also in the T-Chess tapes
0: <laughs> uh-huh. from Joe
1: Meek and stuff. Yeah, like, anybody that ended up becoming anything were gravitating towards this guy. They really knew he was making, like, insane Sounds. Jimmy Page involved uh, bought Aleister Crowley's house. Yeah, it's all coming together.
0: Yeah, oh,
2: fucking freaks, dude. Yeah. All of them.
0: Yeah. Nice. The, it's very nice. The producers. Uh, it seems like the artists were always. They always wanted to be influenced by the other artists more, or mm-hmm. they're willing. They trusted them more. You know, yeah. like the, the Stones. There, there's that uh, story How there's uh, Satanic uh, Majesties, uh, whatever. Uh, mm. They created that because they they were sharing. They were in a room next to the Beatles making Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, uh, and Chuck Klosterman writes that the Rolling Stones stopped evolving when the Beatles stopped making music. Right? <laughs> wow, very interesting. And so I think there's like the producer can do as much as they want, but that's they can only change stuff after it happens. The artists are still doing it in the moment.
1: Yeah, right. that's uh, one of my my favorite little anecdotes about um, the Beatles is when. Um, George Harrison got uh, Clapton to come in to do all, like, the blues licks mm-hmm. on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and he was like, we were fighting nonstop. He's like, the minute Clapton showed up, everybody was on their best behavior. They were like, we're not going to show this guy what a train wreck we yeah, are. Basically, like, <laughs> it's good, it's good, it's good. be cool, be cool, be cool, cool. yeah, everything's great. But yeah, um. He's going deaf. Clapton? Yeah. yeah good. <laughs> 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 Fucking threw his kid out a window, fuck him. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't care. Would you know my name? <laughs> well, I was driving down the street with Joe one time. and uh, Joe Latchett? Yeah. Shout and, out, Joe and, Latchett. And uh, it was, uh, <laughs> it was You Look Wonderful Tonight it was the radio. <laughs> and it was like, we were like blasting it, like full volume. And I, I I yell over to Joe right next to me, I'm like, This song's about his kid dying. And he goes, Yeah, what? <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's
0: not. <laughs> <laughs> you look wonderful
1: tonight. <laughs> Uh, so that's my story. It was about oh, a great.
2: brick of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> Chop it up. Chop it up.
2: What's the difference between Eric Clapton's kid and a kilo of Coke? Oh, no. You <laughs> <laughs> would never drop a kilo <laughs> of Coke. <No. laughs>
1: cocaine. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I love that story. That guy is such a fucking maniac. Yeah, you, it takes maniacs, dude. You yeah. gotta got. a I knew this maniacs. was gonna play into your whole thing of uh, great men are not good people. Great men are
2: not good people. I knew
1: you'd love that for They're that reason. They're all pieces of shit. Yeah, but I mean, God. I, uh, it, it's uh, If I think about everything that's going on in that guy's life at the various different stages, I'm like, that's a lonely fucking road, man. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. But also, I mean, you know, he did a lot of stuff that is also present in a lot of these famous producers things where it's like they just didn't compromise, you know? Yeah,
2: hard-headedness, that stubbornness can...
1: No, no, and even even if it's... But then, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, you turn down the Beatles over that. But also, he you know, he didn't think that would be a thing.
2: Right, and he probably would have fucked it up anyways.
1: Yeah, but it's You know, all- they needed their produ- they- mm-hmm. But they also got to that shit that you were talking about later. Like, right. the fucking around with stuff came later. Yeah. Back when it was in the day, everybody would characterize the Beatles' sound as warm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Which he was not about at all. He was like, no, I want it fucking, I want it to be like the surface of the moon. Yeah, yeah I mean, he would. Which would've... was also Steve Albini's thing. He's like, I don't like that warm shit. He's like, I want the guitar to sound like it's been left out in the sun forever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, just big echo, big space. Drums up front, vocals in the back. I don't care if you're a fucking, if you got an egomaniac singer. You're going to the back, pal. Mm-hmm. This is going to make the radio, like the, the, the radio sound better mm-hmm. if it sounds like this. And a lot of that shit is, is shared by Joe Meek, you know, mm. but just fucking, you know, 20 years earlier. Yeah. It's crazy.
2: Very, very crazy story, John. Yeah. I like that one.
1: Yeah. Shout yeah. out to Katie Miriam. Yeah. Yes. Katie Miriam nice, Katie. Uh, glommed you onto that story. Thank you, Katie, very much. Um, We got anything uh, else? We we already plugged our shit. We did uh, studio headphones. If you are actually,
2: if you want to hear crisp, compressed,
1: not even joking. I started listening to music on the headphones, and uh, it does kind of bring a total different mix. Yeah, I'm I'm not joking. Yeah, I heard stuff in songs I've been listening to for years mm-hmm. that I haven't heard before on these headphones. We're like
2: for real. up my heart I'm with um, like some new in
1: sync shit. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's just like, you know, like, where it's like, you know, how it comes out in the mix or whatever, where you're like, yeah. like oh, I hear somebody kind of like slightly like singing in the background, but it's like way more like present in the mix on those headphones for some reason. Yeah. Also, by the way, Joe Meek was uh, one of the first ones to fuck with uh, stereo sound, oh. which the Ramones, Beer Piss, Yeah. the Ramones did their entire first album uh, bass out of the left speaker, guitar out of the right speaker.
2: Oh, man, that'd probably make you go nuts. No, I mean, like, you it go, sounds you great. You get
1: it, nauseous. It sounds great, but, cool. you know. But then one of your speakers goes down, and you're like, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> Where's
2: the bass? <laughs>
1: yeah, but yeah, nobody had done any of that shit before either, manipulating the sound to one side or the other before Joe Meek.
2: Wow, that's that's
0: big. Yeah, uh, that uh, I quickly tell what, uh, one of my favorite Neil Young stories. Then yeah, so Neil Young, after he leaves uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, he goes, and he makes his album Harvest, which is this great. This great uh, album. Hell yeah! And uh, so, he, but he makes it in uh, I, I think he he made it in this, this strange way. But anyway. At the end of the day, he had it all mixed down, and he had the it, 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 some of it separated into one speaker, some of it separated into the other speaker. So he took one of his speakers. He was at this uh, farm out, and he put one of the speakers in the garage, and he put one of the speakers in the barn. And then him and David Crosby sat in a rowboat on a, in a pond in the backyard. Oh, yeah! And listened to the album, and their only thing was... Uh, needs more barn. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, man, turn up the barn.
2: <laughs> Very nice. I like that.
0: That's good stuff. Uh Matt, you got anything to plug, baby? Uh no I'll be in a, a Ventura in GG Lounge GG Lounge but I'll yeah. uh, uh, plug that when it gets closer uh, I want to thank uh I think it's uh, I'll fix this later in post if I need to uh, William Adler for his, his book on Joe Hill because that's really tied the, he's the one who discovered the the letter and and tied that all together very nice It's called the uh, I Never Died I believe the book is called
1: Hell yeah. Um, we're gonna have some uh, more guests on the program I think Adam Todd Brown from the Unpopular Opinion Network is head gonna, of the network yes the chief as it were mm.
2: um,
1: he is going to he suggested like five different profiles of very interesting cats to me um, Matt you got one coming up that I'm mm-hmm. excited about mm-hmm. um, I've got a couple great and uh, we're gonna keep fucking around and uh, we love you guys thank you so much for the listens um, we're uh Kind of getting more listeners all the time. People really seem to be digging it, which is, like, very, very um, joyous for me. I'm really uh, I'm really pleased by how things are turning out. So thank you guys so much. Yeah, share
2: it. Uh, subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. And just let it, you know, if you've got a favorite episode, share it with people.
1: Yeah, please. And, uh, like, you know, if you're, like, on Reddit or something nerding out about some shit and you think it's uh, pertinent, drop our link in there, please. Mm-hmm. Anywhere you think it matters. Um, anywhere you you think people like weird shit, let them know about us. And, uh, you guys have been suggesting a ton of stuff to us. Uh, we're going to start getting into some of those too. Yeah. And, um, keep those coming. Please keep suggesting weird shit to us because we absolutely love it.
0: Yeah. And, uh, uh, and if I fuck up one of my like 12th hand anecdotes, you know, feel free to tell me, just don't be a dick about it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be a dick about (laughs) it. Yeah, I but mean, you, you can tell me. I don't
1: care. You
2: can be a dick about it to me about anything. Right. I don't care. Right. I like it. Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> beat on me.
1: Yeah, <laughs> whatever. Right,
2: try it out. But try try it not out. to Matt. Okay, oh, he, Matt doesn't deserve on. it.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Matt works really hard. Aaron, you did a, a fine job of driving a long time tonight and then coming to do yeah. the episode. Yeah, I drove
2: you. down from San Francisco and and uh, I came here for you guys. Really I, appreciate I mean, it. I really got to
0: pee. Yeah. Oh, dude. Let's wrap it up. Yeah, try it out. Try it out. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap it up. <laughs> All right.